Hello, I'm Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and it's uh, my privilege and honor to have uh, State Representative Jeff Roy uh, joining us uh, on the uh, radio this morning. Uh, Jeff is uh, running for re-election uh, to the State uh, uh, House of Representatives. Uh, welcome this morning, Jeff. Frank, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I wish we were... Uh sitting in the room at the uh, studios, but uh, you know, this is uh, second best, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a treat to be here. Jeff, you have served a, a long political career in the sense that you've been on the school committee for a number of years. You're a chair of that committee. You, you've been on the town council. Uh, you have now been, you followed an outstanding uh, representative in Jim uh, uh, Valley, and you have not only filled his shoes, but surpassed them. Your colleagues, your the people in Franklin, in Medway, uh, that you represent, are just outstandingly in their praise of how you have been an example of a person elected to positions that have absolutely done an outstanding job. How do you feel looking back at, at that outstanding career so far? Well, I, I, I'll begin by saying, hey, thank you for the kind words, but uh, I will tell you it's been an extraordinary experience uh, to be able to serve uh, both at the local and state government levels. It's, uh, it's a job that I have uh, enjoyed tremendously. And, uh, you know, it's a sense of, uh, I had all my life. I mean, I, I did not grow up uh, in a in a rich family. I mean, we were struggling to make ends meet, and uh, you know, it was always uh, put in my mind by my parents that education is the key to succeeding in in America. And I never forgot that uh, as long as I was, uh, you know, as long as I have lived. And it was. I remember when the twin towers came down in two thousand one. And I really reflected upon what was happening in the world and uh, questioned myself as whether I was doing enough to give back, to provide those opportunities for uh, people who will come after me. And uh, that's when I really uh, strengthened my resolve to get involved in government, uh, making education a priority, because I view that as probably the most important function of government, whether it be the local level or the state level. And I've committed myself to the idea of equality and opportunity for all. And uh, it's been exhilarating. I've enjoyed the work and I'm looking forward to uh, serving uh, for another two years uh, following the November election. Jeff, just to recap a couple of things. When you were on the school committee, you were one of the first individuals to join with others in addressing the drug issue, particularly among young people. Can, can you just, and, and you were part of the founding of uh, the SAFE Coalition, which now has a, a place in Norfolk and uh, is uh, operating uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, can you just highlight how all that came about? Well, uh, I'll uh, talk about the SAFE Coalition in particular because uh, that's an amazing set of circumstances and a real constellation of the stars. 
Um, you know, in our community, we were uh, seeing uh, drug use that was surprising to many. Uh, and we, uh, it was in May of 2015 where we actually saw uh, five people between the ages of 20 and 30 succumb to the disease and die. And uh, in October of 2014, I had gotten an email from uh, Jennifer Knight, who I had experience with back in my school committee days. She uh, was an advocate of making girls ice hockey go from a club sport to a varsity sport, just like we had for the boys. She was uh, tenacious. She was persistent. We made that change. And she sent me an email in 2014, and it began, do you remember me? And uh, she recounted how she had gone on to college. Uh, she moved to California. And she came home in 2014 to see her friends and people she had gone to school with suffering from the disease of addiction. And she was wondering if there was something we could do in our community to solve this problem. And uh, that began a series of meetings that we had. We got together, uh, tried to bring uh, uh, doctors into the picture, community players into the picture, other government officials, district attorneys. And uh, again, I take it to May, we actually saw five people die in the same month. And that was a real catalyst for uh, a movement and social change in the community. And that was the development of the uh, SAFE Coalition. And we, we decided we would put together a forum where we would invite people from the community to have a conversation about substance use disorder. And, you know, it weighed heavily on my mind as to whether, uh, yeah, as I consider myself an ambassador for the community, was it a safe thing to talk about drug use in your community and cast aspersions on the community? And at the end of the day, we knew that this was a problem that was rampant throughout, and it was important that we have that conversation. And over 350 people showed up that evening at Franklin High School with a sense of, we're not alone, we're dealing with this in, uh, among our friends and families, and finally, we have an outlet to talk about this and to talk about uh, the needed resources uh, that are, are, are important to get people on the pathway of recovery. And I will say that that was um, an incredible evening, which led to a series of other evenings, which led to the creation of the Safe Coalition, a, a nonprofit corporation, which now has resources available in the community that simply did not exist in 2015. You now have support groups on, on Monday nights, Wednesday nights, Thursdays, Saturday mornings. You have a team ready to uh, assist and guide you as a family member or somebody suffering from the disease of addiction that you can turn to for help. And we're erasing the stigma behind substance use disorder and treating it as any other disease uh, like uh, cancer, diabetes, any disease, no one should be embarrassed that they suffer from the disease of addiction. And I think it's, uh, it's been compelling work and I'm just absolutely delighted that uh, I was a part of the team that brought this tremendous gem of a resource to the community. And uh, you know, it's all about providing opportunity and an opportunity to get into recovery and again, return as a productive member of society. 
the problem still exists of drug abuse in Franklin and surrounding communities. But how how significant is drug abuse today? And, and is it the same nature that it was when you began uh, this program? I will say this. It's probably the same, but less people are dying as a result of that. We're seeing more people get on the pathway to recovery. We're seeing more uh, acceptance of substance use disorder as a disease as opposed to some uh, you know, criminal activity. We've, uh, we haven't erased the stigma, but we're a long way more towards uh, understanding the disease of addiction. And I think uh, being on the pathway to recovery and seeing less deaths is, uh, is heartwarming. Coming up to a more recent things, uh, during this virus, tell us about this plant in Franklin uh, that uh, became, uh, due to some people, became a manufacturing plant again. And, and exactly what are they making and how did it all come about? Sure. So um, you're, you're talking about Contolo Mass Manufacturing, which is a brand new company that opened its doors in April of 2020. Contolo in Latin stands for bringing together. And I think that exemplifies what this whole operation was about. So um, Clark Cutler McDermott was, is the factory where Contolo now resides. And that had closed about five years. It was uh, five years ago. It was the largest supplier for, uh, for GM uh, sound dampening materials but uh, they ran into some financial troubles, uh, filed bankruptcy, and the factory closed uh, in downtown Franklin. Well, there was a, uh, a former employee who uh, now lives out in Michigan who uh, put in a call to Tom Mercer and said, uh, and this was back, uh, I believe it was March 30th, and said, Tom, I know of some machines uh, that exist in that Clark Cutland uh, McDermott factory that might be able to help uh, with the uh, COVID crisis and produce PPE. So the guy flew out to uh, Massachusetts and Tom called me because he knew I was the chair of the manufacturing caucus in the uh, state house. And uh, we got together with this gentleman uh, whose name is Norb. And uh, he brought in a gentleman from Philadelphia, uh, from Pennsylvania, who uh, had worked together in the past. And they had this idea, they showed us the machinery and they said, if you can get us some help on the local and the state level, we can bring this factory back to life and begin producing uh, PPE. Now the PPE they focus on are gowns and uh, um, they're uh, gowns that are used by first responders. They're, they are gowns that are used uh, in hospitals and that prevent uh, disease from infiltrating into your body. So they began, uh, you know, we hooked them up with, uh, you know, some local manufacturers of fabrics. We hooked them up with uh, some state resources, particularly the Massachusetts Manufacturing Extension Partnership. Uh, we advocated heavily that they get some state aid for startup funding. And the, the governor had set aside $10 million for uh, manufacturing operations. Two million of the $10 million went to Contolo mass, mass Manufacturing to get them up and running. And it was in six weeks that that company actually began production of the uh, medical gowns. 
That's a process that usually takes 18 months. We were able to get it up and running in six weeks. They are producing approximately 60,000 gowns per week at that factory. And I'm happy to report that just a few days ago, they landed an incredible federal uh, contract where they have been asked to produce 12.5 million gowns in the, in the span of the next year. So what that means for this operation is that they're going to move from their current uh, space at Clark Cutler, and they're going to move a few buildings over to a 36,000 square foot warehouse that happens to be on that property. And they're going to uh, now have three cutters uh, operating. They're going to employ about 100 people and they're going to produce 12 million gowns in the next year. That took a factory that had been closed for five years, brought it back to life, and is now producing uh, personal protective equipment for the entire United States. The 12 million gowns are gonna to go to the national stockpile. It's an incredible success story. It's a cr an incredible example of community players coming together to uh, support a business create jobs, and create life-saving equipment. Um, I am just absolutely thrilled to, again, to have been part of the team that made that happen right here in Franklin. Is this business a for-profit business or is it a non-profit business? It's a for-profit business. Absolutely. And, and the individuals that uh, came to help start it up, uh, are they the principal owners, or, or uh, how, where, where did the, uh, I gather it's probably a stock business, or is uh, it it's private? A, it's, a, it's a private company right now. It's a private company, okay. Private company right now. Uh, the original gentleman, Norb, uh, he came in, he made all his introductions, he helped get the operation uh, started up, but then he went back to Michigan, he's back into retirement. The gentleman from Pennsylvania, Peter Burson, uh, has actually uh, moved his family uh, to our, our area. We're trying to get him a house in Franklin. He's, he's living in Upton right now. But he saw a manufacturing ecosystem in Massachusetts that doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States. And he was incredibly uh, thrilled with the level of support he saw and the level of... Uh, of uh, need that he uprooted his, his family, moved everybody up here. He's been delighted with the school systems in our area, delighted with the uh, economic policies we have here, and he wants to uh, become a Massachusetts resident and keep his business right here in Franklin, Massachusetts. Jeff, uh, Roy running for re-election for the state uh, House of Representatives, mentioning the, the State House Manufacturing Council, are you the person that created that, though? Uh, it was actually created by uh, Senator Dick Moore and Representative John Fernandes from Milford. So Senator Dick Moore was from Uxbridge, and uh, John Fernandes was from Milford. But uh, I got involved with that caucus. It was back in 2014. Uh, the speaker had had a meeting with some of the uh, industry folks uh, saying that we needed this type of uh, a caucus in Massachusetts because there was a renaissance underway to, uh, to bring manufacturing back to Massachusetts. 
And in order for us to be a real key player, we ought to be thinking of economic policies to attract manufacturing to Massachusetts. So uh, it was actually Speaker DeLeo and he appointed uh, Rep. Fernandez. And I was one of the uh, early adopters. I was the vice chair at that time. And when uh, Rep. Fernandez stepped down uh, four years ago, uh, I jumped up to the plate and uh, we have been developing policies to attract manufacturers, keep manufacturers here. And uh, we go uh, throughout the state visiting with companies saying, what do you need from your government to help you uh, stay here in Massachusetts? And, uh, you know, how can we help? And uh, it's been a remarkable experience. We've had manufacturing roundtables throughout the state where we invite government officials to sit at the same table with uh, uh, business players and talk about how they can help one another. The thing that amazed me was that they didn't know about each other. Just opening up these conversations has led to some incredible uh, advancements in manufacturing. Uh, we see a, a tremendous reshoring initiative underway where people have recognized that you don't need to manufacture your products uh, in China or somewhere else. You can get that work done right here in Massachusetts. We have some of the best innovators with uh, MIT, Worcester Polytech, UMass Lowell, they want to see their manufacturing operations. They can Today, they can get in a car and drive to a factory in Franklin or, or Norton or, uh, or Andover and see within 45 minutes how their product is being developed. And it gets the, the uh, idea from innovation to production shortens that whole process and uh, has been a, a, a great boost for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, it's 10% of the economic output in Massachusetts. It employs over 270,000 people and it's one of the highest paid uh, salaries. So uh, manufacturing has had a great history. We're in the fourth industrial revolution and once again, Massachusetts is gonna lead the way. The election coming up, uh, there is a very sophisticated piece of equipment for handicapped voters uh, that they can go to and it will totally, uh, I haven't seen it work, but, but bring up the ballot and they will be able to vote with ease. And, and you know, I've been very upset that we have, we have this wonderful piece of equipment to help some people vote, but downtown Franklin, we they can't get on the train. Handicapped people, there's a handicapped pocket spot, yeah. but basically those that are in wheelchair bound cannot get on the train. I know you've been working in a little different area or trying to bring a second track yeah. uh, in this area. H how is that proceeding and, and what what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Well, uh, trying to accomplish making the uh, trains perform on time. And a second track is necessary to increase performance on the train line. So now, um, I think it was about eight or nine miles of the track from Franklin to Boston was single track, which means if somebody got delayed, 
one of the trains got delayed or one of the trains breaks down, it shuts down the entire line. With a double track, if a train gets delayed or gets broken down, you can simply move to the other track. And so uh, the double track uh, has already been constructed uh, down to Norfolk. So we now have double track from Boston to Norfolk, and they are underway with the, uh, the uh, construction of double track from Norfolk to Franklin. The double track will actually come right within inches of the downtown Franklin station. And uh, I would like to see that double track go all the way to Forge Park. Unfortunately, and you raise an incredible issue that has been uh, disturbing to me as well, uh, the lack of handicapped access uh, at the downtown Franklin Station. They cannot go in to Franklin Station for the, the double track because the station is not ADA compliant. And therefore, they cannot do any construction until they make that uh, station um, handicapped accessible. I want to share with you uh, uh, an idea that uh, I'm pursuing with some of our local officials to make that station handicapped accessible. And uh, we actually had a developer who came in to look at the buildings along Main Street, the town-owned parking lot that uh, is called the upper lot at the train station, and the MBTA station itself. Uh, we had brought all the players to the table, the MBTA, Town of Franklin, and this private developer, looking at the prospect of raising the buildings on Main Street, building uh, commercial space at the first level, residential space above that, rehabbing the entire downtown train station, and making uh, a, a, an incredible parking lot at that uh, downtown station, and also bringing an elevator from street level down to, uh, down to the track level and uh, erecting platforms so that there's a handicapped accessibility on the trains. That's a dream that uh, I have. We, we came close when we had this one developer come in, but the, uh, the deal fell through. But I can tell you, I'm gonna continue pursuing that because we need a, a system of uh, transportation that's reliable, that's safe, and accessible to everyone. And I will keep that as one of my goals until it's done. Moving to some current issues in the state of Massachusetts, I understand that there is a projected shortfall in, in the budget for this fiscal year that we are in. Yeah. How much of a shortfall uh, is the projection? Well, let's, uh, you know, it depends on who you talk to. I've seen it. And that's, this is FY21, which began July 1, 2020, and ends June 30, 2021. Uh, the projected shortfall in the middle of the pandemic was as high as 7 uh, to $8 billion. I think most folks, uh, you know, having seen uh, some, some good economic uh, data, are now in the $1.75 billion range to $5 billion. It's a lot uh, better than where we had projected before. But on top of that, we're still in the process of closing out the FY20 budget, which ended June 30th of 2020. Uh, much to our delight, 
The shortfall for that budget uh, was, uh, was put out just yesterday and it was $693 million, a lot lower than we had anticipated. Uh, and uh, amazingly, income taxes were at benchmark because many companies were able to pivot to uh, setting up uh, the ability for people to work at home. So uh, people were continuing to work and we didn't see any uh, reduction in income taxes. Where we did see reductions was uh, the biggest one was sales tax. People were spending less money. So that revenue was, uh, was 6% uh, below benchmark. And we also saw a deferral of business taxes. Um, we saw lower uh, gaming revenues because our casinos were closed. And we saw lower gas taxes because people weren't moving about the Commonwealth. So to the extent that we see changes in those activities, the casinos are back up and running. Um, so we expect that uh, we'll get back on track with, uh, with those revenues. Um, but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think we're gonna be on the lower end of the shortfall and uh, I, you know, when we're not going to have a level funded budget for FY21, but we uh, expect to do that to sometime this month. I actually have my budget meeting uh, with the Ways and Means chair set up for uh, October 13th. And uh, I'm going to, um, I expect that we're going to see some movement on the budget in the next uh, month or so. I understand that what you're doing right now is passing a 112th budget. Is, is that correct? Well, we actually did a 112th for the first month. And then we did, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a, a three-fourths budget where we funded uh, the budget for FY21 through October 31 at level funding. So what we're looking at is what are we going to do for November 1 moving forward? There is some talk about doing another interim budget, um, but there's also talk about trying to just set up the budget for the rest of the year. One thing we did do was we made a commitment to local communities that we would level fund Chapter 70 education aid, and we would level, a, level fund other local, uh, local receipts. So our local governments are going to get the same amount of money in FY21 as they got in FY20, that made it somewhat easier for them to balance their budgets. And the other thing we're waiting for is we're waiting for the federal government to come together and make a decision on what they're going to do uh, about uh, more stimulus aid uh, for, for COVID. And we have uh, you know, a lot of anxiety out there because the, the federal government just can't seem to come together to make a decision about what type of aid is going to be available to the states. I hope that they come to uh, their senses before the November 3rd election and that we have that resolved because that's an important piece for every state and every community in the United States. Jeff, you probably are aware that the longer that you level fund the state budget, the deeper the cut that you have to make to the end of the budget year. Yep. Um, it, it, and so if the federal government does not come through, 
then the cuts are going to be absolutely, uh, and maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but they're going to be devastating, aren't they? Well, um, not necessarily. Okay. Because one of the one of the remarkable things that we have done with the state budget is we have amassed a rainy day fund that is a landmark in the United States. We have $3.5 billion sitting in a rainy day fund. So we so are going 600,000 of that just got used by the shortfall for the last fiscal year, is it right? No, no, we're not going to use any of that rainy day fund. How are you going to fund the 600 million shortfall well, we, last fiscal year? We saw some increased reimbursements from the federal government for, for mass health payments. Uh, and we uh, actually had some excess revenues in some other departments. So we're actually going to be able to balance the FY20 budget without touching the rainy day fund. So that rainy day fund is going to be completely available for FY21. So that's why you can make the commitments that you did to the local government in the funding of other programs. You got it. Yep. Uh, Jeff, I was surprised that the town of Franklin has received so much money from FEMA and, and other organizations. And apparently, I guess the, the, uh, the kids that go to school get, I don't know what you call them, uh, computers, but they're, they're, uh, uh, the, oh my God, they, uh, they're, uh, they're a small educational. Yeah. They're like piece. $200 computers. And apparently the town of Franklin had purchased a number of them on their own. Yep. Part of my, my question is, and then the federal government has really added a, quite a bit more. My question is, is, is your belief that we should fund school computers in funding for at-home education, regardless of wealth, or should we pay, somehow prioritize the, the impact to those that uh, maybe are not, uh, are not part of the middle class yet? Well, you know, that's a, you know, that's a great question, and that's a very difficult balance. Uh, you know, you want to provide equality for all and opportunity for all, and not, uh, it, Frank, it's Chromebooks. That's what they Chromebooks, use. right. And uh, so not everybody has a Chromebook, and, uh, you know, they're $200 machines, and to the extent that families can afford them, great, let them use them, but to the extent we have families who do not have access to that, we need to make them available. And I think the uh, school department has done a great job of doing that. Beyond that, um, we don't have every family with the ability to get internet access. Uh, it's a less of a problem here in Franklin because we have robust services through uh, Verizon and Comcast. Uh, but there are some communities outside of Franklin in the western part of the state that don't even have internet access. So that's something we're paying attention to um, at the state level to broaden uh, internet access and, and uh, services available. But, uh, you know, I definitely think it's a, a wise investment for us to put these Chromebooks in the hands of, of 
every uh, student because they are necessary tools to do this online learning. And without them, you can't succeed. What other uh, homeschooling, uh, uh, what other items are necessary if students are going to be at home? Or should the, anyone be, be, be providing desks? Or is there other things, uh, supplies? Are there other items? Uh, are there, the library is closed, but I gather you can, uh, there must be probably some way of uh, using the school library or the public library uh, in relation to homes, uh, the teachers uh, teaching students at home. What are the other things that are a priority if people are not going to school? I would say probably number one would be support services. So um, tutors, so that, you know, if kids are not understanding what's happening uh, on the screen, that they have access to support services. You know, when you're in school, you have access to an aide that can help you. Uh, Childcare services for those families um, who cannot be at home because they, they have to get out to a job. That's another uh, area uh, that's important. Uh, and access to the curriculum. Um, you know, I think the schools have done a good job in making the materials available electronically. Uh, but, you know, it's, this is something that, uh, you know, caught us all by surprise. We didn't expect to be in this position. And, uh, you know, teaching the teachers how to teach in a Zoom or, or Google meeting environment is another uh, support service that they, I think is necessary. And if you combine all of that, you know, you have everybody with Chromebooks, you have professional development uh, to uh, have the teachers uh, have a, a great experience in terms of teaching online, and then you provide the support services such as tutors or childcare, that's the best way uh, to make this work. And I know Franklin is moving towards a hybrid model where they'll have you know, some kids at home and some kids in the classroom. Um, you know, I, I applaud them for stepping up in probably the most difficult circumstances that I think any of us have ever experienced. And uh, I, I encourage them to continue. And uh, I have stayed in close contact with them to provide whatever supports we can at the state level. I think we've done a good job there. I know that Franklin was the recipient of close to $2 million in, in federal stimulus aid to help with uh, uh, you know, school issues um, along these lines. So. Uh, I'm hopeful. I mean, ideally, I'd like to see the kids in the classroom because that's where learning uh, really takes place. But uh, um, uh, I've been greatly disappointed in the federal bailout packages. They seem to be directed to people that have wealth, and they seem to be directed uh, principally to businesses. My theory about businesses is that a business is on its own. It, it's supposed to either make a profit or it goes out of business. Restaurants are a prime example. If you're going in the restaurant business, the failure rate is going to be high. I understand there is a bill in the 
I don't know whether it's the House of Representatives or the Senate, to help restaurants. My question to you is, how much help should the state be giving to businesses, and what type of or help should that be? I mean, you've already mentioned starting up a company that was necessary to produce uh, gowns. But what is the your thinking on on support for uh, uh, restaurants and other types of businesses? I think the best thing that we can do for restaurants and these types of businesses to, is to provide them with the flexibility that they need to succeed in the business. For example, um, many restaurants prior to the uh, pandemic could not serve meals outside and uh, creating uh, an environment where they could serve meals outside. And it's, it's great now because the weather's great. Um, I don't know that we can do that in February, but allowing them the flexibility to serve meals outside and to serve uh, alcoholic beverages, you know, under the, uh, the liquor liability regulations, we, we could not uh, allow them to serve uh, outside the uh, building. So we, we made some flexibility to allow them to do that. We allowed them to uh, set up tents in their parking lots so they could serve meals out there. That's the type of government support that uh, I think is necessary. And, uh, you know, I've loved seeing the, uh, uh, throughout the community that, you know, we have some, some places doing things outside. Uh, you know, um, I know that the Rome restaurant has a th thriving business outside, that uh, Teddy Gallagher's is doing it, 99 restaurant is doing it. Uh, the Black Box Theater is one of the only performance venues in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that's actually doing live performances uh, because they have the ability to set up a tent uh, in their parking lot. And I've seen Broadway performers there and bands that have been out of business since March performing uh, at this venue. And uh, that's because we've helped them, uh, you know, ease some of the regulations and allow them to do things to be more flexible. And that's where the government can help. Jeff, what's the question that I haven't asked you that you would like to address uh, during this election? Well, we, we did not discuss uh, police reform. And, uh, I, you know, I, that's been a, a hot topic. And uh, I would just like to, to share with you that, you know, I, I've, I've talked about it extensively. Uh, I've written about it extensively. And just yesterday, I spent the day uh, at the State Police Academy, uh, training, uh, undergoing the training that our state troopers go uh, under uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I was there from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., engaged in uh, hands-on training in the use of, uh, of force. Uh, I did some classroom training, and uh, I was encouraged to see uh, that these folks from the colonel down to the troopers, and I engaged with many during that uh, experience, are committed to the idea of reform. They understand the need for reform, and they're excited about being agents of change. So rather than criticizing the legislators that they were uh, engaged with yesterday, we had an extremely healthy dialogue 
about ways that we can work together to make policing stronger and to make policing bias-free in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So that was an, an encouraging day and uh, just one topic that I thought we should touch upon today. But there, in the reform, there will need to be some uh, higher standard or at least a standard uh, before a policeman can be sued by a private individual uh, yeah. that is high enough uh, that a jury just wouldn't say, well, I think this guy deserves money and why not just give him the money? A am I correct or am I wrong? You are correct. And as a matter of fact, um, I had actually filed the amendment uh, to the House bill that would uh, set up a commission to study qualified immunity and to make some recommendations to the legislature about whether or not uh, any changes were necessary and what those changes should be. Um, you know, that was a controversial uh, piece of the bill. And I said, I didn't think it was a responsible thing for us to take 50 years of case law and just dismantle it without hearing from subject matter experts. And uh, I was encouraged that my amendment was voted uh, as part of the final bill and that we are actually going to have that type of a commission to uh, study uh, qualified immunity. Jeff Roy, our state rep is running for re-election. Jeff, how can people reach you in your campaign? Well, the easiest way to uh, get to me is through my uh, webpage, which is jeffreyroy.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y.com. I'm sorry, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-O-Y.com. And uh, there it gives my telephone number, my email address, um, you know, uh, and there's actually a contact page on that website. So uh, people can get in touch with me there. They can get in touch with me on Facebook and they can use that old fashioned device called the telephone and call me at the state house at 617-722-2030. I love hearing from constituents uh, and I love working with uh, the folks in this community because I know together we have accomplished much in the eight years I've been in the state house and I'm looking forward to uh, continuing that work together. One last quick question. Frank, the town of Franklin has a ballot question uh, related to the town uh, in, in increasing uh, slightly some taxes for the purpose of uh, historical and cultural uh, funding of, uh, of sites. Do you support that uh, uh, ballot question? Very much support that um, because for years, by not having the Community Preservation Act in Franklin, we have left a lot of state dollars on the table. The state will match up to 25% of the money that the town collects through the Community Preservation Act. So we take in these dollars, the state will kick in an additional 25%, and we will have a pool of funds to preserve open space, to uh, preserve historical uh, markers and create historical markers. Uh, we have a lot of rich uh, properties in Franklin and, and preserving them, uh, you know, two that come to mind, uh, the Franklin State Forest, which we just, uh, uh, constructed a parking lot using uh, state funds that we got in last year's budget and the, the SNET trail, which is going to 
uh, be unveiling uh, the tunnel underneath Prospect Street. That construction is wrapping up now, and that's a tremendous recreational asset we have in Franklin. Community Preservation Act will allow us to build on these robust uh, uh, open space areas that are badly needed in the community. Jeff, let me make a suggestion to you. Sure. Uh, I thought your presentation today was so wonderful that I know you send out an email about once a month what's happening. Maybe you might want to think about having a program on 102.9 WFPR radio once a month and and go through what, what you just did about uh, current things that are happening. So I want to thank you for uh, your graciousness, as always, on being on this uh, uh, radio or TV uh, interviews and uh, wish you the uh, best in uh, your re-election bid. Thank you so much, Frank, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, you folks down at the studio are another great asset we have in Franklin, and you do some great programming, and I'm delighted that uh, you allow me to share some of that space.